0: very nice to see you back with us today and today we have a fantastic array of guests and what we're going to be talking about is deaf awareness and mental health so you'll be able to join in with us tonight you can follow on twitter using the hashtag mhtv Um, and ask questions and Dave's off camera tonight because we've got a full house Um, but he's going to be avidly scrolling through seeing what you're doing and feeding back so if you do have questions please let us know and likewise if you're on Facebook following the live stream you can absolutely comment there Um, and again absolutely join in ask questions and and we're really pleased to have you with us tonight so let's go round Um, as I can see people we're going to introduce everybody but our questions are going to be for our panelists so we start with Megan hello Megan can you tell us a bit about yourself
1: Yeah. Hi, Um, my name is Megan Luton. I'm a midwifery lecturer at Middlesex University, Um, and the reason I'm here tonight is because I do have a specialist interest in deaf awareness. Um, I grew up um, around deaf people and um, I'm currently learning to sign. I'm doing my BSL level six. Um, and as a result, I've ended up getting involved in a lot of deaf awareness projects. And I've just started my um, PhD looking at the experiences of deaf women in maternity services. So um, I've got a lot of involvement with, um, with deaf, deaf women mainly, but obviously uh, mental health covers the whole population. So
0: Absolutely. Um, Lenka, hello. Welcome.
2: Hello. Good evening. My name is Lenka. Um, I'm here tonight uh, to represent Southwest London St. George's Mental Health Trust. I'm the deaf advisor there. I've been, I've grown up within a deaf family myself. I went to a deaf school. I went to a mainstream school. I moved from another country, uh, so I have a number of languages under my belt.
0: <clears throat>
2: um, I started working here as a as a nanny initially. Then I moved on into education and. And then I started studying for a psychology degree and got a master's degree. And my, my passion is really mental health and also mostly linked with young people, teenagers, and adolescents and their development and how mental health can be so sort of very important to them and how best to support them in that development. That's brilliant.
0: Thank you so much for spending time with us today, Erica. Hi, um,
3: I'm Erica. Um, I am Sign Health's community engagement worker. Sign Health is a charity. We're really passionate about improving health and well-being for deaf people. Sign Health partners with the NHS and other service providers across the country to make sure that deaf people can break down barriers and actually receive the same sort of access to healthcare as hearing people. The main three areas we cover are psychological therapy in BSL, domestic abuse, and social care. Now, I was actually born as a deaf person. I was born into a hearing family. I grew up using sign language from being very small. um, And I'm really looking forward to being part of this discussion this evening, as deaf awareness, mental health, and everything together is, is really a hot topic for me. And thank you for
0: inviting me. It's a pleasure. And just to acknowledge our two fantastic interpreters, Helen and Rob, tonight as well. So thank you much, both of you. I think maybe we can start by just saying um, just a little bit about some of the issues facing the deaf community, particularly around COVID. Can we start there? Okay, you want
2: to go first.
3: Yeah, that's fine. Um, Sign Health recently um, conducted a survey in from August to September and surveyed participants over how, how COVID had affected them, um, and some very interesting results. Nearly ninety percent said that they were concerned that if they contracted COVID, um, they were worried about communication with hospital staff. Mm. Now, when we asked them. The three major issues for all of the community were 80% said social isolation. They said they'd had a big change in their lifestyle, access was limited. 62% said they were really worried over people wearing face masks and being able to communicate with them. And 56% said that it was access to healthcare. They just didn't have enough of it. And that was a really big concern. So those were the three things that were impacting the community at that time. And it was raising anxiety. 61% of people surveyed said that they had become anxious over that time. 60% of both said it, the stress, the worry, uh, and about the implications Mm -hmm. of that. And that was really clear evidence for sign health, could look at that and we saw a massive impact on the community so we've partnered with interpreter now we've set up bsl health access a specialist service and that's used used across the nhs all staff know about it Mm -hmm. and what it is it's a vrs service a video relay service which means deaf people can use it to communicate with nhs staff through The remote platform during the COVID pandemic. And if there isn't an interpreter available or they can't be present for whatever reason, they could use this. Lenka.
2: Hmm. Great. Uh, We shouldn't forget young people as well because, you know, they're locked down, they've been sent home from school, so that their their, their skills of um, socialization have become slightly different than, than what they're used to. They may or not have complete communication with parents in their home. so there are lots of factors there. Um, mm-hmm. So I think there's, we've seen an increase in the in the level of anxiety in young people, um, isolation as well. Of course, teaching goes on through Zoom, but uh, you know, will the schools provide interpreters in that in that situation? So it's become more and more difficult, um, and I think deaf young people have struggled in particular. Our service, we have six services. Um, um, We have four deaf CAMs and an inpatient. It's the only inpatient service in the country, Um, Mm -hmm. potentially the only one in Europe. This is for Mm -hmm. deaf young people, teenagers and adolescents. Mm -hmm. We have an outpatient community teams. Um, The CAMs outpatient team has worked particularly hard through, through COVID. We have two adult... Services, as well, uh, community team, and also an inpatient team, and they've all reported a huge impact. Particularly when we think about need to wear uh, to wear masks, our trust has a really high percentage of deaf employees. So, uh, this is deaf nurses and healthcare systems mm-hmm. And so, communicating between between them, um, and the interpreters, and making sure that we provide equal access is, has really been a, a, a an arduous journey. One of my particular goals mm-hmm. has been to find out uh, masks that are effective in a, in, in a deaf environment.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: <clears throat> we couldn't find a place in the UK that provided masks that were accessible for us to to to, to lip read. The ones that we, we sourced from overseas didn't match the kind of standards that we have here, infection yeah. mm-hmm. control standards and things like that. So. <clears throat> um, and for the most part, the people who were manufacturing these these masks were, were hearing and didn't understand maybe the nuances that are required uh, for sign language users. So, yeah. what uh, it's a myth that deaf people can lip read 100%. We can't. We simply can't. Uh, it, it's it's a very limited, mm-hmm. very uh, small percentage of communication that can happen through lip reading. So it's really important you. To, to make people understand that as a BSL user, if I'm trying to lip read someone, it's difficult for me, uh, it's also difficult for people, of course, to, to try and make themselves understood. But we need to keep that in mind that with masks, it exacerbates that, that problem. Um, mm-hmm. We have been able to find some masks, and um, you know, we've, we've been going okay. We recently set up a survey because uh, it's the first time that we've ever had to experience remote working with young people. Um, and it's very different, of course. You know,
0: mm-hmm. all of our
2: therapies have been conducted face to face. Staff staff uh, members have visited people's homes or visited people's schools or been in, in, in settings outside the hospital. But of course, with the amount of with well, the amount of traveling that had to stop. You know, it became remote, and then when you start thinking about an older generation of people who don't have access to technology mm-hmm. or maybe don't understand technology in the way that they need to to communicate remotely. Uh, so, as I said, we set up a survey, mm-hmm. and we have questioned a number of people about because we want to know not only how things have affected people, but what the people who work within our service and who we work with, how it's
1: affected them. I think it's important as well, just going back to Erica's point, to recognize that the deaf BSL community um, already have poorer health as a result of a lack of access to information and a lack of kind of background information. So they're not necessarily overhearing things at the dinner table or um, picking up information from media adverts. Um, so we're already talking about a community with reduced access that's potentially been reduced even further. So what sorts
3: do yeah, and just to follow workers? on from that. Sorry, Nikki. Okay. Oh, um, just Yeah, just to add into that. So some deaf people who don't understand the coronavirus information that's been publicized mm-hmm. so far to date. So what they've had is you, we've been trying to make two minute summary guides to try and get that information translated, acceptable into, into a format that they understand in their first language and get it out there to people.
2: Yeah, that's a that's a really big issue. <clears throat> if we look back at the start of lockdown, BBC News, the information that was coming from the government. Sometimes there were no in-vision interpreters. I mean, I know up in Scotland, and Wales, they were able to provide interpreters in, in, in these crucial news moments. But in England, that wasn't happen, happening. And, and there's been a number of people who've been campaigning uh, for this for a long time, and it still seems to be an issue. <clears throat> I think deaf people really feel disempowered uh, despite mm-hmm. the campaigns that have gone on to... Mm-hmm. Uh, if, if anything, COVID has just highlighted uh, the extra stress that deaf people feel, and um, the inequality. Mm-hmm. The 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 equality act mm-hmm. as 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 requires that, that there is reasonable, reasonable adjustment to be made.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: And of course, that includes provision of the interpreters. But it seems that people's voices mm-hmm. are not being heard. <clears throat> and so it's really become. Uh, you know, the deaf community has really become very active about this because we want the same access as hearing people. That when news is being delivered, that mm-hmm. is of national importance, uh, you know, it's not good enough to just say, "Well, there's subtitling and you know, there's, there's subtitles for people," but that's mm-hmm. not necessarily the case because <clears throat> for a lot of us, BSL is our first language, and not English, and sometimes it can lead to confusion <clears throat> and. You know, there may be the case that there are organisations out there making summary explanations of things. But there's always you know, a lot later than the times that mm-hmm. other people hear their news. So in these mm-hmm. kinds of situations, these emergencies, uh, we, everybody needs to be included. And I think it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's vital.
3: Yeah, it's access <laughs> to health. And that is vital. And it, health information is...
2: And no access to information means no access to health. You're right. Some people just don't know what it means, and you know, and it potentially has serious consequences. Mm,
0: definitely. So we've got some joining in with questions already. And um, thank you Alfonso, and um, saying so it's lovely to have a, an episode on deaf awareness and health, um, and thanking you very much for um, coming on and educating us, um, and also Julia Terry. Joins us from Wales, um, and would like maybe to hear some of your thoughts on why deaf people have been disadvantaged for such a long time in terms of health information, because it's been going on for decades. She says,
1: "Yeah, deaf history is is really important, um, and this is uh, one of the things that I'm looking at as part of my research." Um, But I think um, we were talking just before we went live about the impact of um, a conference, an education conference that was held in 1880 um, and it was held in Milan Um, and this was an education conference that um, ultimately for a variety of reasons now is considered to be um, not really the gold standard of, of how you inform people. Um and but ultimately it led to the ban of sign language in in deaf education. So um it meant that deaf children weren't allowed to learn in in potentially their first language, a visual language. Um and the impact of this has lasted still, it's still with us now. Um and it's it's something that you know has been a real legacy for deaf people in terms of um, being able to access sign language um, and being able to access education, because if the focus is on speaking, there's no focus on English, math, science um, and, and that kind of education. Um, and I believe, although um, I'm sure Elenka and Erica may correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it was only in the 1980s, so 100 years later, that this was um, overturned and that you know,
3: deaf children were allowed to access education in sign language. Go um, ahead. Yeah. I mean, way back in 1880, the conference that Megan's mentioning really had a massive impact on the education standards. Educational prof- professionals brought brought in deaf people, but then decided that sign language shouldn't be used in schools. Um, And it was prohibited to that extent. So schools that, that were using them around the world then had to suddenly change how they were teaching. And that has remained in place for many, many years. Interestingly, in the UK in the 1960s, there was somebody, looked into it and they were looking at gestures in schools and there was no proper language taught, which was affecting deaf people. They were becoming less confident as adults. They didn't have um, a language to be able to access anything. They were not intellectually discriminated against. They just were not able to participate to the full extent of their potential and that was 1960s then you look forward to 1975 and mary brennan did some research and she looked at sign language use in the uk and said yeah there is language still happening around the uk it is present it is still in existence and a lot of people were shocked people started to become then proud of their language. They gave it a name, they gave it an official title as British Sign Language. And that recognition started there. Then you jump ahead again, 30 years, and you look at um, the York report, and it says more deaf children were putting into mainstream education. And sometimes they were the only deaf child in that school which meant that really they had no access to deaf adults. They had no role models. Mm-hmm. Um, they couldn't navigate through the hearing world by getting hints and tips from others, and actually a lack of opportunity to get those hints and tips. And it was all those things as a culmination that has impacted on them, and created the community we have today. Now, 2015, the Department of Education looked at the statistics and said 30% of deaf children were leaving secondary school um, achieving a GCSE. 36% compared to their 65% of hearing peers. The inequality was striking at that time. And they looked into how and began to start looking into how to break that.
2: Um, it was a kind of discrimination, I suppose. Um, the Milan conference, uh, they really uh, supported oralism. And they said that sign language at that time was, well, the they said it was constituted gestures and wasn't a legitimate language. And that was one of the reasons that oralism and not signing was was, you know, was proposed. And it's been going on for centuries too. There was lots of shame attached to sign language. And there were lots of instances I can think of. As Erica said, um, education is primary to make sure that children leave school with the same kind of experiences the same kind of advantages that that uh, their hearing peers do.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, and a lot a lot of deaf people say that their, their real education begins when they're adults, they've left school, and then they start to learn um, through, through sign language. Uh, mm-hmm. And of course, one of the f- one of the first places where you learn language is in your family, mm-hmm. within your fa- you know when mum and dad speak to you. If you're born, there's, of course, newborn hearing screening tests that are done. uh, The doctors will say, I'm so sorry, but your child has failed the hearing test. So right from the get-go, you have a negative Mm -hmm. connotation applied to it. And so parents immediately feel this this sense of grief because their child is a failure. Uh, They can't understand what that means. It's a sense of panic. They start to imagine what the future life of this child mm-hmm. will be there's never uh, an mm-hmm. opportunity for a deaf adult a role model to say look it's okay things can 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 work out uh, fine mm-hmm. um, and so parents only ever receive one side of the picture one side. it's really biased um, and i think mm-hmm. it's really unfortunate also Of course, there are other ways that doctors will talk about interventions that can help. Cochlear implants uh, have been really popular. Um, but again, that doesn't that, that can happen much later than, than when a child needs to acquire language. Hearing children start to communicate with their parents right from the beginning. Um, and so it's vital that at that unusual stage that parents start to bond with their child. And research has shown that parents who have hearing parents who have deaf children um, the level of engagement is much shorter than it would be with hearing kids so with deaf kids they will speak mm-hmm. less and communicate as they would with maybe their brother or sister um, parents who are offered sign language classes who learn sign language and then go home and start to you know, communicate with their children in sign language mm-hmm. we've noticed that these kids start to develop better megan was talking about um sitting at the dinner table and this kind of in, in, intermittent language that goes on i mean that's a really big important part of communication and the deaf child might say sorry what, what did you say what's going on and the response to the parent most likely is oh don't worry i'll tell you later which can lead to a sense of frustration if the child doesn't understand what's going on might even get up from the table and leave And then people's reaction will be oh my god that boy's so rude that child's not behaving well and and you know later on we can find out that maybe it was just an insignificant piece of conversation that was being missed but all this sort of this 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 hearing that is being missed by a deaf child uh you know it's not necessarily something they need to be privy to because it's, it's adult speaking but later on they can kind of think, oh, that's that's what was happening. But deaf children don't have op- opportunities for this incidental learning. Now they can see that their parents are fighting, for example, and they can understand from their behavior that it's okay to be angry. And then they go to school and they don't have the way, they don't have the words or the, the language to express themselves. So they start to be labeled as a, as a mischievous or, 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 or troubled child. So what we want to do is to be able to provide information for the parents from the start that when you know it, it, it happens that they're born with a child who's deaf, it's not mm-hmm. the end. We need to change the attitude right at the beginning, right, at, right when the, the child is born. Uh, that, that, that's the attitude I think we need to address.
3: I fully agree with that, Lenka. 90% of deaf children are born to hearing families. I was one of that 90%. Mm-hmm. Um, born to hearing of families, but I was really lucky and that my family did learn to sign. And that, that bit of language uh, enabled it for me to be easier they fit in with what I was doing it helped me to access other things I could access information in sign language and then through that sign language I learned English because then actually I could actually question my family say what does this English word mean and they could sign it to me so that was really really lucky for me you know privilege that I had that a lot of deaf children don't have and when you think about other more um, modes of communication for them, other things, they struggle through life. Um, and it's sort of like double discrimination. They can't achieve. It's, it's if you're trying to get to a job, the impact, the knock-on effect of all of those things mm. links back to your education and, again, your mental health. You know, the ability to engage with people, if it's always there as an issue in your mind, your background, your, your history, your culture, your language is always a key part of you. Your family, your upbringing, it's always a key part of you as an adult. And if you, it helps you integrate. It helps you fit in. And you've got
2: to have that. Yeah, but let me be, let me be clear. The word deaf doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to have mental health problems. You know, I, I, I was born a... And I was definitely, mean, of course, I faced barriers in my life, and I could talk about that all day. But you know, I grew up as a really, very resilient child and started mm-hmm. to you know, have a normal life. People who do go through lots of, experience lots of barriers. I mean, that's something that applies to all humans, isn't it? We have to think, um, you know, maybe as simple as something, making a GP appointment for hearing people. We pick up the phone. You call, you make an appointment, uh, it's done. Uh, It's something that people take for granted. Uh, Whereas for a deaf person, you either use an interpreter, there are lots of small things uh, that on an everyday, that occur on an everyday basis that can just build up within a person and make them just just feel, feel really vulnerable and susceptible to mental health. That's how things start to occur. It's environmental, not because they're deaf, but because of Mm buildup of environmental factors Mm -hmm. and experiences that that make make it difficult. Erica explained it very, very clearly. But once the barriers are out of the way, life just goes on and we operate pretty pretty well. Uh, Mm -hmm. The percentage of deaf people who experience mental health compared to hearing kids is about 25% compared to about 45% of deaf kids who are experiencing mental health issues. This research was done back in 1994. Peter, Peter Hindley was the person who conducted this. And I wonder whether or not that's actually increased because of COVID. I wonder whether or not Mm -hmm. the statistics for for deaf young people experiencing mental health, Uh, but the the number of male suicide, uh, the number of people Mm-hmm. Who have passed away as a result of of of, of deaths, um, especially those who are working who are who are in a specialist service.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: It's important that we try to make sure that we have research that explores what's been going on.
1: I think mm-hmm. um, as well, we there's a lot of good research in the deaf community about the idea of deaf identity. Uh, deaf identity. And that's been impacted a lot by the deaf history. This, you know, if if all deaf children are mainstreamed, they might be the only deaf person. So where are they lear- Where are they learning about deaf history, deaf identity, deaf culture? They might previously have learned from a deaf teacher, but now, you know, mm. teachers of the deaf don't necessarily need to sign. Um, so it's not a requirement of the job necessarily. So. This idea of deaf identity sometimes comes a bit later, and mm-hmm. I've um, through my my journey of learning to sign, I've met a lot of deaf adults who themselves are learning to sign at the age of thirty or forty because they finally found this place where they fit. Um, mm-hmm. and they can now communicate in a language that feels more natural to them because they're visual people. Um, you know, and they share their stories of feeling isolated in mainstream school. Yes, they had hearing friends. They, you know, they were, um, had friends and they were welcomed. And they they may identify as hearing because they're from a hearing family, but actually there is a complexity to their identity that um, that isn't fully appreciated. And I think this is really important when we're talking about mental health, when we're talking about the provision of services, that actually, Mm. if you're from a deaf culture, then you need culturally competent mental health services. Mm.
0: This is a question that's coming through a lot, actually, from different people. Um, So talking about what skills... Sorry sorry to interrupt. Um,
2: My research, uh, when I was studying, I worked at Corner House... Um, whilst I was um, doing my master's degree. And a lot of young people who came to our service, it was the first time they'd actually seen deaf professional, deaf adults and interpreters.
1: Yeah. And
2: I remember speaking to young people and saying, oh, my gosh, hearing people can sign? And it was very... They were very confused and, and surprised. And I also think there was a real sense of relief that they had found a place where, where young people, where people around them would sign. There was a bright young kid, I think they were 15 years old, uh, when they first got to our service, and they were utterly shocked uh, that they could communicate with us. And you know we were fluent BSL users. And from the first time that I worked there, uh, I began to realize that the children feel Finally, Mm -hmm. that they are able to uh, explore themselves and Mm -hmm. understand who they are. And I think one Mm -hmm. of the things, one of the parts of their identity which speaks, which could also be true for me, is that I'm I'm deaf, but that's one of many parts of me. Uh, And uh, I'm feeling part of a community. Uh, I belong. I think I'm proud of my identity. Um, I think mm-hmm. over the years, I've heard young people say, mm-hmm. I feel part of something. Uh, mm-hmm. and it's not just uh, mental health necessarily, but it's, it's a question of things that have been missing from their lives for so long. And this mm-hmm. person yeah. that we were talking about went on to university and has, has done really well. Mm-hmm. It's important that we have role models, that we have linguistic role models out there as well. So that deaf kids are able to to um to 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 exceed and, and, and excel.
0: So the question that keeps coming through is what what can we do? What can health um staff and students do to engage and better support deaf service users?
1: I think um Lenka's point is
3: oh. sorry, can I just have a bit of clarification? Can you just
0: repeat the question, Nikki? Yeah, of course. Uh, what skills uh, do you recommend for health and social care students and professionals to engage and better support deaf service users?
1: I think Lenka um, was talking about. Um... Sorry, sorry. Gone.
2: <laughs> <laughs> sorry, gone. Sorry, go, go, Megan. Go, I didn't were I didn't talking. Go. go ahead.
1: Um, I think what Lenka was saying about, um, you know, she has, deaf is part of her identity, but it's not her whole identity. Um, And I think, especially if you're a a hearing healthcare worker, which I am, um, I think it's true that we need to be listening to people, all people, but remembering that deaf people have been navigating their deafness in a hearing world their whole lives. And so they're going to want things that, you know, we can give you tips and advice all the time, but actually you need to ask the deaf person what it is that they need specifically. Um, And so, I mean, I can give you an example. I have a friend who's accessed um, inpatient mental health services. And when she was in distress um, in, in the inpatient services, she would get panic, had a panic disorder. She would start panicking. That's when they would get an interpreter for her And she didn't want the interpreter. She felt like that was two people coming down on her, the healthcare worker and the interpreter. It was all in her face. And of course the healthcare worker thought they were doing the right thing. And she kept saying, please don't bring an interpreter. Please don't bring an interpreter. Just calm me down or stroke my back or, but but don't bring an interpreter. Bring the interpreter afterwards to explain to me what happened. And that was her preference even though we might have advised the healthcare worker where you always need to have an interpreter there, it's not what the deaf person wanted?
2: Mm. Mm. I don't think it really matters whether you're deaf or hearing. What really matters is that we don't make assumptions about people you know, we, we remain open-minded. I think that's what I would offer. Um, you can read lots of stories about about people, but not having assumptions. I'm sure deaf people, uh, you know, who are very expert at recognizing facial expressions, might think, you know, just calm down. I'm, I'm not necessarily that, that that in need of help right now. But what's important is communication. I think one of the things you, we need to always ask people is what's your preferred communication method? Because not all deaf people want to or use interpreters. Uh, the, the deaf community is very, very varied and diverse. So I think one of the things, that one of my tips is ask a person what their, their, their preferred language is. Um, mm-hmm. if, this, if the situation is serious, Um, You know, and of course, deaf people can be quite vocal when they're angry. It it can be the case that they get misinterpreted, and the police are involved, and they get sectioned, and that they were just—you know—nothing was really going on other than just being angry. So um, it could be the fact that uh, they were misdiagnosed because there either was an interpreter or there wasn't an interpreter. Mm -hmm. But I think one of the things that I would offer when you're around deaf people is just breathe. It's all quite simple. Um, establish a level of rapport with a deaf person, uh, and you know that just will go. Uh, that will be a really beneficial gesture. Um, I think hearing people think, uh, you know, I can't sign. I don't know what to do. I think one of the things I would have a basic gestures like want a cup of tea, want a coffee, want something like that. Um, you know, that that, that human contact. Is is so very important. It doesn't necessarily matter that you can sign at level six, seven, eight, nine, ten. If you have uh you know issues, I and mean, if you're if you're feeling upset mentally, of course, knowing that somebody is there and is recognizing that you're upset, buy a cup of tea is important. Yeah, I think it's important to show
3: people making the effort to engage, you're not just forcing that person to lip read you all the time, because it's impossible to do that. Um, It's exhausting to offer them something else, a pen and paper. I mean, the deaf community have so many different communication methods. Some people do prefer to speak and lip read. Some people do prefer a pen and paper if there's no interpreter, but some people do even just prefer a gesture with communication. So it's important to think about that, but also to be aware that when you're specifically looking at service delivery around the UK, mental health professionals, it's used to, It's useful to know who you have in your area, to know who you can tap into and contact, especially for IAPT. We're the only IAPT service in BSL, and we provide a specifically tailor-made um, assessment service for deaf people. Also,
2: let's remember, I mean, it depends on the severity of a person's condition, of, the, of their illness. Because uh, not everybody is suited for talking therapies. Because uh, there are lots of abstract theories that are involved in uh, talking therapies. And it might be the case that people just don't have the kind of emotional language to talk about that. So there needs to be some sort of psychological input mm-hmm. And referral is important, because making sure that deaf people get referred to the right place. Often deaf people get referred to a hearing uh, service, and then they might bring in an interpreter. It could be that uh, that would lengthen the the, the amount of time that they stay involved in therapy. So making sure that deaf people are signposted and referred to the right place. And it depends a lot on whether or not the GP uh, I mean, it's such a big advantage if 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 GPs are aware of, of the services out there that are specifically catered to the needs of deaf people. They make it much easier to you know, to access via funding or whatever, need, whatever is needed. So uh, we have to be realistic, but you know, that's a really good place to start with GPs. And Just to add yeah. in to that.
3: It's also about hearing people just connecting, they think it's cheaper to just refer them to a hearing service, but also there's a guide to commissioning uh, mental health services for deaf people and it does say that statistically BSL therapies are cheaper in the long run because booking an interpreter is expensive because then you need more sessions. because the time take it long. Sometimes deaf people are anxious and they have increased anxiety over who the interpreter is. Do I know them? Are they familiar with me? Are they too familiar with me? Have I used them somewhere else in my life? So again, some interpreters uh, have worked they they use at work that they might not want to use for their therapy. They want to keep it separate for their life. They might not. They won't want the same. So, they they might also have different interpreters coming to every session, which doesn't lead to continuity of access for health and doesn't actually help that a connection between therapists. Yeah. They might have a male interpreter and they want a female, they might struggle to find an interpreter for that session, which again, that might delay care, or it might cancel the session if they've had one booked and then they struggle to find one. So BSL therapies have proven to be cheaper, they've proven to have additional benefit to clients. Um, There was one case study that we had um, that was a sign health worker um, and a client. And the client had anxiety of falling and they they worried that people would laugh and nobody would help. Um, And again, they looked at the therapist, they went with them. um, The therapist and the client were looking at people falling, obviously. Um, A lot of people do offer to help in that sort of situation. Um, But again, the the therapist was deaf, but it proved the real-life situation in that mock instance, that recreation of falling, how that people wouldn't laugh, they would offer assistance, but also the therapist could then demonstrate how to cope, how to communicate, and that was really, really advantageous on top of the basic therapy.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, also linked to interpreters, um, professionals need, we need more professionals who can sign. That's it. Mm-hmm. The service that I work in, we have a regular pool of interpreters mm-hmm. that work with us. Mm-hmm. Um, and they are trained as interpreters, of course, but they also have years of experience in mental health. Um, lots of them are freelancing interpreters. But it's really important to say, I think, that if we, if you encounter an, a deaf person, and then you know, maybe you could use a member of your family to interpret. I've got to say right here and now, that's a no-no.
0: Mm.
2: It, 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 we cannot have members of the family Interpreting for for deaf people because very often um, they would fix or amend the message and the deaf person is not getting the amount of access that they have the right to. Uh, of course, deaf people in any situation have the right to be in charge of and in control of their lives, to make mm-hmm. decisions, uh, and to not to f- and not to feel controlled. Lots of mm-hmm. deaf people are also very vulnerable too. You know, there's lots of uh, sympathy in that get, gets applied to deaf people that isn't necessarily nece- isn't, isn't necessary.
3: Mm-hmm. Just
2: you know. so it's really important, I think, to make sure that when you see, you don't look at deaf people as disadvantaged. We're, we're the same. We just have a different, we use a different language, uh, mm-hmm. and that language, for the most part, is
1: sign language.
0: Mm-hmm. I've got a couple more questions, I'll just quickly squeeze them in. So one is from Lynn. Hello, Lynn. He says, could BSL be made a compulsory skill, especially for services that should be confidential when having to have an interpreter might be intrusive or a barrier? And then there's a second question, which is, um, it's come to, I think, probably from one of our psychology students. And they're asking, um, should a deaf person have a deaf psychologist? Or a deaf counsellor because of the shared experience, the shared lived experience.
1: Um, can I answer the question about making BSL a compulsory skill? Um, I'd like to say it has been very hard to learn BSL and adopt the grammar, and um, you know, fully appreciate the the nuances and the characterisation and. The, I mean, the grammar is so wildly different. I, you know, I really still struggle and I've been studying it for quite a long time. So I think making it a compulsory skill is too complicated. And actually, I think in my experience of speaking to, to deaf people, they they don't necessarily... It's, it's lovely, like Lenka was saying, it's lovely if you can offer a cup of tea and t- tell them your name. But sometimes that can create more anxiety because if there's not deaf awareness that goes with that, you think you're communicating and actually they need full interpretation from somebody with, with, who's been studying for 10 or 15 years, who appreciates the culture, who appreciates, um, you know, I would, I would never interpret myself because I haven't been involved in the community for long enough to appreciate those things. Um, so I think making it compulsory, no, I think if you want to learn I think I think BSL education should be more accessible it's quite expensive at the moment but that's because it's a really specialist skill so you know it's a complicated thing to to um to answer but compulsory no but if you want to learn I think you absolutely should and be able to introduce yourself and offer a cup of tea and just put a deaf person at ease, you know, a deaf BSL user at ease when they arrive, um, but know how to book an interpreter, know how to pr- you know, provide deaf-aware services. Um, I think that would be, from my experience, that's the sort of feedback I've been given.
2: One thing uh, about learning, uh, BSL is, is that you don't necessarily become <laughs> deaf aware. For example, if you decide to learn French, you go to a French course and use <laughs> French. Of course, um, you don't really necessarily have to know much about French culture.
0: Um,
2: so you know, there are things that are ex- acceptable within French culture and English and. British culture that, and vice versa that aren't compatible. It's the same with deaf people. Um, sometimes uh, deaf people without, will look at each other and without even speaking, will know that they're both deaf. There's something mm-hmm. innate, uh, something, uh, say, for example, you move to another country and you hear someone uh, speaking your mother language for the first time, and you go, oh and you will make... You would make eye contact with them. You wouldn't really necessarily have to talk, but if you hear them speaking English or whatever your mother tongue is, you have that moment of connection, don't you? It's something that happens with deaf people as, as well. When we employ interpreters in, the, in sessions, it's important for the clinicians to understand and to be able to assess a deaf patient. But they might ask questions in a particularly English fashion, so it's up to the interpreter to be able to moderate and modulate and culturally adapt that language so it's understood. So it's important to recognise that, you know, say for example, that someone was experiencing depression, mm-hmm. uh, they wouldn't make eye contact, and of course, sign language requires that you make eye eye eye, eye contact. Um, if the person managed to make just a second of eye contact, an interpreter is trained and will be able to relay that. An interpreter would be able to say, Look, "This has happened. What just happened? There was there was, a, there was a glimmer of connection, and that's something that is is, is vital for us to remember, mm-hmm. because a lot of deaf people go through life without um, you know make, making connections to people very easily, um, mm-hmm. and so you no. Know, We need to bear that in mind, so learning sign language, learning BSL is not necessarily understanding the culture, it's the beliefs, the values, the connections that deaf people have with each other, the storytelling, the jokes, the drama, it's such a rich, rich, rich Mm -hmm. culture, it really is. you know, facial expressions, body movements, role shift, all those kinds. I haven't met Erica before tonight. And right away, as soon as we, uh, we we saw each other on camera, we immediately started having a warm kind of connection. We were talking about the regional differences in sign. She, she said the sign for home. And she, I said, she says home like this. I say home like this. And I'm like, oh, you must be from the north, right? Because right away, we had that connection. And this was even before we introduced our names. Uh, This is something very particular to deaf people, I think. Uh, uh, Obviously, we find out what each other's names were next, but the sense of, oh, you're deaf like me. Um, uh, And the same could be said of deaf people who travel internationally. Uh, There's an immediate connection Mm. that I think, if you want to be part of that, it's more than just learning sign language, it's becoming
0: part
3: of the And it's the same as Lenka said there. When you look at people um, all over the UK and America, although we both speak English, the sign language is very, very different. But um, the deafness is the same. I can meet an American person and still have that Communication, even if it's a lot visual, more visual than it would be in England, Mm. but we we have that connection because it's culturally very very similar.
2: There are lots of um, videos out there, and you know, there's I watch people from Thailand uh, using sign language. I watch people from America, Korea, African Mm. countries. Um, it's nice to watch people from different cultures using sign language. Uh, I'm not you know, a great at using international sign, but I like to watch people communicate. And when I meet people, it doesn't take long before we establish a kind of common vocabulary. You're absolutely right. It's, it's a marvelous part of our world.
0: Okay. I think we've we've run so far and fast. We've covered loads of things. None of the things that we said were good but that's fine. We'll have to do this again. I think <laughs> it's a lot to fit in, isn't it? So I think maybe if we just go around and ask people what they what the thoughts they want to leave people with are. So who would like to go first?
2: Um. I don't, I don't mind saying going first. I think you've heard, listened to our conversations, and I hopefully hopefully, there's been food for thought.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And I think, mm-hmm. hopefully, that you've reflected on, you know, don't w- run for the hills if you meet a deaf person. Be warm and engaging. Um, and if you're excited to learn BSL, then that's great. Mm-hmm. Please do that. Please feel free to socialize. I mean, if, it, it's not easy at first, Uh, I welcome people to come and visit our service. I think it's it's vital that, you know, there are are differences between the the hearing world and the deaf world, but I think we need to get rid of some of these barriers. And hopefully, uh, one of my biggest hopes is that don't be ashamed, speak to people, If you need tips and advice, if you need anything, it's important that we work together. Um, That's what I wanted to say, Linka. Sorry, (laughs) you've summed it up
3: in a nutshell. Um, No, it's great. It's great that we're thinking along the same lines. Um, And really, I would say that to people as well. I welcome questions. I welcome deaf people, um, their comments, their advice, your questions, because it's about making sure that people can work together to improve mental health access for all deaf people. Um, And Sign Health is really passionate about that. We want to break down those barriers for deaf people Um, and doing that is is by working together to create videos in BSL, to create health information and uh, and get it out to people. So I think really um, it's about meeting a deaf person, maybe learning a bit of BSL, it would be fantastic, it will make that deaf person's day, you know, even just to know a little bit Um, and it just brightens their day because it might be the connection that they need.
1: Yeah, I I agree. Um, I think I find the deaf community incredibly welcoming um, right from the beginning of my BSL journey um, until now where I'm a bit more independent with my signing. Um, you know, I've always been welcomed. I've been teased when I've signed things wrong. I once, um, I once told a deaf person that my husband wears high heels instead of he goes cycling because I used the wrong <laughs> finger. Um, so you know, and and I get teased for that still. And. You know, it's it's a lovely community. And I think the one thing I would say is just have it in the back of your mind. If you're moving to a telephone service, how is a deaf person going to access that independently? It's those little things that really make the big difference. Mm-hmm.
0: Brilliant. that has been so, so helpful listening to you guys tonight. We're still having people commenting, by the way. They're not stopping. Um, Julia's saying um, that she in Wales is starting a conversation with health education and Improvement Wales about deaf awareness in health professional education. That's coming up in December. Um, obviously, it's better if deaf people lead these conversations. So, if anyone wants in on that, you can either contact any of us or her on Twitter or on Facebook and, and you can get in there. Um, and Lynn Mayer said it's really great to think of deaf awareness as cultural awareness rather than understanding a disability, which also I think is um, a really positive way of doing it. Um, there was a couple of things coming up that Dave has obviously been on my case to say. So next week, um, we've got Star Wars coming up. So that's the bright charity, that service user-led um, a charity that does has done such a lot to revolutionise um, the voice of service users in the mental health community and also just improve standards to make things um, joyful and healing and recovery focus. So, so grateful for them coming on. Um, Then we're looking at controversies and care. We're looking at people with personality issues. And then we've got a review of 2020, because that's how fast this year has gone. (laughs) So, yeah, if there's anybody um, who's asking questions who still hasn't had a chance to um, come back, we'll be coming back onto Twitter and and onto Facebook, and we'll be answering your questions. We've also got Megan's... um, very um, delightful recommendations, which include Caitlyn Moran's uh, Ode to Camel Toe being very joyously signed. <laughs> so if no one's seen that before, get ready. <laughs> and it just leaves us tonight to say thank you so much to Lenka, Erica and Megan and also to Helen and Rob. Thank you very, very much. Awesome to see you and good night, everyone.